0: Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am so happy to announce the continuation of Backstage Babble's series celebrating the shows of 2023 with my interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright David Auburn, who is the author of this season's Summer 1976, now on Broadway starring Laura Linney and Jessica Hecht. His other plays include Proof, The Columnist, Lost Lake, Skyscraper, and We Had a Very Good Time. He also served as script consultant on Tick Tick Boom Off-Broadway, and his screenplay credits include Georgetown, The Lake House, and The Girl in the Park. And now, without further ado, here's David Auburn. Well, so I'd love to start us off by asking, how did you first become interested in theater? i had
1: that... always seen and done a lot of theater growing up. My dad was, a, was an English professor who taught theater classes uh, at Ohio State University. And I'd done theater as a, you know, as I'd done community theater and I'd done theater in school. We moved around a bit, so that was always a really good place, a good, a good place to meet new people and to sort of plug into new su- social situations when you move to a new city. Um, but I never thought of doing it professionally until, I guess, I was somewhere in college and I started performing with a sketch comedy troupe. Um, I'd always enjoyed performing, but it was never something that I felt particularly passionate about, but I loved writing sketches, I discovered, and I loved the process, not just of writing them, but also putting them together and putting them up on stage, and then seeing how they worked in front of an audience and trying to figure out why certain things worked dramatically or comically or theatrically and other things didn't. And that kind of trial and error aspect of, of working in the theater began to really appeal to me. I loved tinkering and I loved discovering, you know, oh, there's no one laughs here, but then if you if you move this piece of information to earlier in the scene, then all of a sudden that line that didn't get a laugh before now gets a laugh. Why is that? Why what what are the physics of of how that works? Um so I gradually became more and more interested in writing for the theater and wrote a one-act play wrote a full-length play and was sort of on my way from there
0: Uh, and were your parents or sort of people around you supportive of that interest and
1: broadly yes I mean I think that when it came to sort of the moment where you say all right I think I really want to try to pursue this as a career I think they had the questions that any concerned parent would have about that but they were always encouraging and they were always uh, supportive
0: And did you have either comedians or playwrights who sort of influenced your work the most?
1: Comedians, for sure. I mean, I had grown up listening to lots and lots of comedy albums, Um, Monty Python albums, and Cook and Moore, and Beyond the Fringe, and then you know albums by Steve Martin and uh, Jonathan Winters, and and I loved old radio comedy shows when I could find them on cassette, or whatever. So I'd always been very interested in that stuff. Sketch comedy was very familiar to me. Um, And then with plays, I had, not I mean, I had gone to see a lot of plays, but I think until I was in high school, I really hadn't seen that many contemporary plays. I remember the first, the first play, the first sort of contemporary American play that I saw that had a big impact on me, I remember, was the House of Blue Leaves by John Guare because it was done it was done on there was a Lincoln Center production that was then put on PBS and I remember making a tape of it a VHS tape of the broadcast and I watched it many many times both because I loved the production and also because the play just sort of opened my eyes to a whole style of playwriting that I hadn't really been familiar with
0: yeah And what were the subjects of those early plays that you mentioned you started writing?
1: They were sort of absurdist comedies, I would say, in the mode of, I don't know, quite, I mean, maybe Chris Durangi, or maybe some, you know, I thought of myself very much as a comedy writer. And I wrote comic plays, I remember one was a sort of farcical family drama which became a comedy set on the rim of the Grand Canyon, and it had people falling into the canyon and things like that. So that was the style of some of that early stuff, like sketch-derived comic short plays.
0: Yeah. And so then how did that interest sort of broaden into dramatic subjects as well?
1: Well, I think part of it was... The experience of going into the Juilliard program, I I heard about this new program. I was living in New York. I was I had just moved there. I was trying to sort of do small theater, make small theater pieces with my friends, and and do shows, uh, uh in you know tiny venues. And I heard about this new program that was starting up at Juilliard, that was being taught by Christopher Durang and Marcia Norman. It was their first program. It sounded like a dream to me. Uh, I got in, I started writing, and I think it was partially the exposure to Juilliard actors that made me, I don't know about writing, write in a a more realistic style, but certainly pay more attention to the kinds of questions that actors have and the kind of grounding that they need in order to give a performance. I never really worked with, you know, actors with formal training before, and uh gradually that moved that tended to move me in a in a more realistic direction for whatever reason. And there was also it was also the experience of having my very first play produced commercially that was a sort of absurdist comedy type of play. It was called skyscraper yeah. that um it wasn't just that that play wasn't particularly successful because it 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 was a it was a gratifying experience in a lot of ways for a twenty five year old to have that first production in New York, but it it was more that I started to get more interested in character. I started to feel less interested in sort of whatever I thought were the sort of conceptual or structural games that I was playing, and more interested in writing real roles for, that 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 actors could sink their teach, teeth into, and that took me. In a direction that ultimately led to proof.
0: Oh yeah, and how did that production of Skyscraper come about?
1: I'd had a reading of the play at the Berkshire Theater Festival one summer. They did a they did a staged reading that was well received, and the director was a young, ambitious director named Mike Rigo, and he wanted to start a theater company, which he did with his brother and partner Matt. Uh, that was called the Rocka Group. They're still in existence today. They produce on Broadway now, and they produce big tours. And you know they're they're a major Broadway producer. But this, in order to get their company started, they wanted to do an off-Broadway play, and this was the play that they that they picked. So that was their first venture as as producers in New York, and it was my first professional production of a full-length play.
0: And what makes an ideal collaborator for you in terms of a director I know you've worked with Daniel Sullivan a lot all of
1: the things that you want with with anybody who you're going to spend spending a lot of time with you know um <laughs> enthusiasm creativity uh, a pretty even temperament is nice a uh, sense of humor and a, and a sense of and a sense of process so that you know the, that you're working with someone who understands the kind of ups and downs of your own creative cycle of the of the cycles of the actors you're working with, the designers, and who can kind of orchestrate all of that so that the plane lands nice nice and smooth at the end of the runway. I mean, that kind of temperament is really valuable in a director, and, and Dan certainly has it uh, in spades.
0: And how involved do you like to be in both the casting and the rehearsal processes? Are you there almost every day, or how does that?
1: I like to be very involved in the casting. That should be a conversation, I think, with the with the director that you that you reach a consensus on together, because I think if you, you know, if you can't, if you can't, for whatever reason, agree on the kinds of actors to be playing the roles, it's probably a pretty good sign that there's some kind of creative mismatch going on there. Um, After the first kind of couple days of rehearsal or week of rehearsal, let's say after the table work is done when the director is just staging the play i don't really like to be there very much i don't think it's all that useful there's not very much for me to do for one thing and it's also helpful for the actors to have an opportunity to talk to the director candidly about what they're struggling with or what they're you know what they're maybe confused about in the text without the playwright there to get their feelings hurt um mm-hmm. and then i come back when it's helpful, you know, when when I can contribute something. And and then I'm generally there into, you know, into into tech and previews and, and responding to what I see. But I, I find much more than being there all the time, it's much more useful. Go away, so let them do the work, come back and respond to it.
0: Right. And you mentioned um, Skyscrapers starting at the Berkshire Theatre Festival. And do you think that it's generally important for plays to be somewhere else before coming into New York or...?
1: I don't know. You know, it's it's funny. I really haven't had most of my plays have premiered in New York, and um, that can be very nerve wracking because you're you know you're you're premiering something new uh, to the maximum scrutiny that that a play can get, except maybe in London. That can be nerve wracking. On the other hand, you know you have the huge advantage of the incredibly deep talent pool that's here. To draw on for your actors and designers and director. So there are compensations. Um, But no, I think, you know, I do do, developing a show out of town and bringing in is something I'd like to do. I haven't really had that much experience with it, strangely, uh, at this point in my career.
0: Oh, yeah. And so how did the idea for Proof first come about? I
1: had an idea about Two sisters who were fighting over something that they discovered after a parent's death, some kind of legacy that they discovered and were and and were then you know put at odds over. And around the same time, I had a I had another idea which was about someone who was worried that they might inherit a parent's mental illness. And I didn't know if those two plays if those two ideas belonged in the same play. Or if they were different plays. But the but in sort of seeing if there was a way to fit them together, I stumbled on the idea of the thing that they found being a mathematical proof, which struck me as having the potential to have its authorship questioned in some interesting ways that perhaps I don't know, a manu- a book manuscript or a painting couldn't have. Um, and that sort of helped me find my way into the world of mathematicians. Uh, and the play then kind of came about fairly quickly with those, with that, with that collection of elements bubbling together. Um, uh, and I was able to, I was able to write a first draft fairly quickly once I had all those pieces.
0: Oh yeah, and what is the process like of sort of writing for a character with a mental illness and? Is there research involved in that, or I always try
1: to do as much reading as I can about any aspect of the play that I'm writing about. I'm not sure I even think of it as research so much as just sort of like immersion and you know, and learning and enjoying the process of 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 getting into a new subject. Uh, with proof, I do remember that it just seemed to me that if you're going to ask an audience to worry about whether or not a character was mentally ill or whether their perceptions could be trusted that it would make sense dramatically to try to put the audience in that character's shoes in their point of view somehow as early as possible so that you shared with them the experience of disorientation or confusion or not being being sure if you could trust yourself so you know that that was the initial impulse that led to You know, writing a writing a first scene anyway, that in which a lot of reversals were were sort of inflicted on the character that that they weren't quite sure what was really happening so that you could hopefully share that subjective experience.
0: Right. And do you conceive some of your plays specifically for Broadway and some not? Or is it just sort of whatever happens, happens or?
1: No, whatever happens happens because you don't know if they'll be produced at all, right. <laughs> Let alone, you know, let alone on Broadway. So you're just trying to get the thing written and you're trying to make get it down on paper and, and have it make as much sense as you possibly can. And then and then, you know, after that, you can start thinking about, all right, well, maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll show this to someone or maybe I'll see if I can get a theater interested with this latest play that's running now called Summer 1976, it was a commission from MTC. So I did know that they would have that I would have a reader in MTC when I finished whatever it was. They didn't know what they were going to get. And then, you know, I gave them a play that was essentially monologues, like essentially two characters interacting mostly through monologue, although also through dialogue sometimes, but a very intimate play. And I assumed that we would do it off Broadway because of the because of the nature of it and that held true until about I don't know maybe 7 or 8 months ago when uh, Laura Lenny uh, agreed to do it and then that made it an attractive prospect for them to to put in their larger theater so um that was just circumstance you know that was just the luck of casting that that made it sort of eligible for a bigger house
0: right and have there been changes made to sort of adapt to the bigger house or anything like that or
1: not by me i mean there've been no text change. No, nothing about having it on broadway has dictated any changes in the text i think you know the it probably has a more elaborate it's it's still a it's still a wonderfully um elegant and simple physical production but it probably has a few more bells and whistles than it would If we were doing it in a small theater off Broadway, but John Lee Beatty, the designer and Dan and the lighting designer have all worked really hard, I think, to create an intimate experience in the Friedman theater, which is itself a pretty intimate theater. I mean, it's a 700 seat theater. So we were, it was never, it was, you know, we were never talking about putting this play in a giant, giant, you know, arena (laughs) or anything. So um, they've, and, and they've, they've situated it really beautifully, I think, so that you still feel quite close to these actors. And these characters,
0: and for those who don't know what is Summer 1976 about, and
1: it's about two women who become friends in during that summer. They're young mothers, and they strike up a friendship through their children, essentially. And the play traces the evolution of that friendship over the course of the summer, which is a period of time that changes both of their lives, and the friendship changes both of their lives. And then they, as they grow apart, the play sort of asks the question, what happened? Like, why did this friendship not last? What effect did it have on them uh, going forward into their lives? And and what are its repercussions into the future? So, And the sort of device of the play is that they are speaking to us, not from 1976, but from 20, 2003, when they're both in their sort of late 50s, early 60s which is how old the actors are who are playing the characters. And they're looking back on their younger selves and inhabiting their younger selves as well.
0: And do you often write with specific actors in mind? Or?
1: I almost never do. I mean, you know, you you often have fantasies about the kind of actor who could play a part. And sometimes that can help you imagine the character, but no, usually it's just enough. Effort. The effort is just to kind of like make sense of this person who you're inventing and put aside anything else until you get to a point where hopefully, where hopefully you're lucky enough to actually get to cast it.
0: Right. Right. And so to go back to proof, I'd be curious to ask too, what do you think it was about that play that made it able to have a longer Broadway run than most plays do?
1: There were a couple of factors. I mean, one, I think was just that, you know, like, like anything that, that, that it becomes a success. It got lucky to the extent that it kind of caught a moment and it was it was it arrived at the right time and that kind of play that sort of well made American family drama perhaps hadn't there hadn't been many of them on Broadway for at least for a while and and it and it was people were happy to see that kind of play, I think. Also, the quality of the cast was extraordinary. Um, that helped a lot. In terms of the longer run, I always felt that one of the, you know, I I have the producers and Dan Sullivan to thank for this, that, you know, when we when we put in new cast members, they weren't we didn't sub in new actors individually into individual roles the way which is the way it's often done on Broadway, you know, And, and then that actor would have had been rehearsed by a stage manager and then put in to the to an existing company. Probably gotten notes from a director or some guidance from the director, but never really a rehearsal process. Um, the producers invested the time and money uh when we did replacement casts of proof, so that we had a whole cast being replaced all at once. And they had almost a full rehearsal period, like a two and a half week rehearsal period before they went in, so that, and Dan took the approach during those rehearsals of very much of you know, you're not just here to do what was done before you we are rehearsing. Imagine you're rehearsing a new play, make it your own. uh, Discover your own path through this thing. It was reblocked, it was, you know, it was it was done fresh. So that and I think that made a huge difference in terms of the experience that the audience received,
0: you know, a year into the run or 18 months into the run, whatever. Right. And how often did you revisit it just to see it or check up on it? or
1: Not very often. I mean, I, I, I always went when obviously I went to the rehearsals when there was a new cast, I would go to the first few performances by a new cast. Uh, sometimes I would drop in, at, you know, for a second act or something like that, especially if I had to do a talkback. But I don't really it's not that I don't enjoy seeing my work, but it's not I don't after I've seen it a dozen times or in the case of proof, many more than that. I, I sort of lose <laughs> I lose the passion to sort of sit there and revisit it again and again. It stops being as interesting.
0: Right. And what was the process like of adapting that particular play for the screen? And what sort of had to be changed? It was, a. you know, I think that the big thing
1: with a film adaptation of a play, especially a play that has a single setting, is... You have to re-answer all the questions you used to have about what's dictating the point of view of the play. Um, and you have or or of the story in the case of the movie. So you have to sort of reimagine the whole structure of the thing so that the logic of why you're seeing the things you're seeing and not other things applies as strongly to a movie which can go anywhere as it did to a play, which is, you know, setting certain parameters by virtue of the actual, you know, physical setting of the play, which isn't going to change. Um, A lot, that was a lot of the work, I would say.
0: Right, right. And you've written a few screenplays as well, in addition to that. And do you feel that sort of the role of the writer in Hollywood is different than it is on the stage?
1: Yeah, it's completely different because, well, for one thing, you have a different, you just certainly have different legal A relationship to the work you know you as a playwright you never sell your play you are granting a theater the right to produce it for a certain amount of time and with that comes lots and lots of protections that have been built up both by tradition and by you know by hard work from organizations like the Dramatist Guild which dictate the kind of control you have over that play so that you know they can't cast it without your approval they can't they can't change it without your approval they can't you know it is your play you own the copyright Um, and the opposite is true of the movies of course you are selling the script to a producer or a studio and then they can do whatever they want with it they can alter it in any way they want they can change one word they can hire 50 new writers to change everything you know it's not yours in the same sense so so that just makes the process very different it doesn't mean it can't be rewarding um, and I have had mostly, I think pretty good experiences working in the movies, but it is a different thing. it's it's a little like you know, it's it, you're more like being a contractor uh, on a job and 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 you've been hired to put a roof on the house and they want you to do a good job and you want to put a good roof on there and you don't want it to leak. but ultimately, it's not your house, right. so uh it's the it's it's it belongs to the director or the studio or some combination
0: and you mentioned earlier on that an early interest was in sort of fixing things with comedy and the chemistry of all that. And one project that you did in which you were working with an existing existing material was tick tick boom. And what sort of was there at the time that you started?
1: they gave me a big sheaf of drafts. So Jonathan Larson had originally done Tick, Tick, Boom as a workshop production, which he had performed as a kind of monologue. And I think his original vision for the show was something probably like a kind of Eric Bogosian style monologue, where he was playing, he was narrating and playing different characters. But he, added the additional complication of, he was also singing, and he was also accompanying himself, and he was also conducting a a band, you know, all at the same time. So I've seen, you know, I'd seen workshops, uh, videos of the workshops that Jonathan had done. It was a very ambitious thing. So I was given these monologues, which had gone through multiple drafts, and then I was given a cassette full of songs. And it was immediately clear that, you know, this wasn't just sort of some like a kind of grab bag. It was, this was a complete score with a very clear shape and a lot of dramatic potential the producers had had and the producers and the director Scott Schwartz had, had the idea to expand it from a one person show into a three person show so that you'd have one actor playing Jonathan and two other actors playing all the other characters which made a lot of sense so that that was the sort of mandate that I started with and i just so it, the the work was a combination of sort of like Reworking the monologue into into a combination of monologue and dialogue that could be performed by three actors, and then finding a structure that made sense for the piece. Um, There, you know. uh, It it was clear that it had never really worked structurally as a piece of storytelling, um, even though there were so many wonderful things in it, so I thought that one of my jobs was just to sort of like give it a little more of a shape and. We did that by essentially, i th- I thought that the main the main thing you needed to see, because the move the the play is about Jonathan's frustration and his ambition and his desire to make it as a musical theater artist. I thought you the the main thing you needed to see was him actually trying to do something because the original drafts had all began after the failure of a musical that he had written called Superbia and was all taking place in the aftermath of it. And I felt that you really needed to see his, you know, working on a new show, his hopes for the new show, you needed to see the workshop, you needed to see it crash, you needed to see his disappointment, you know, that was the story. So a lot of that was just about reordering the material and then finding a song that had not been in the original show um, as a, as a sort of moment of seeing this workshop of this unrealized work that he had invested so many hopes in and and we were able to find a a, a stunning song from superbia that had never been heard and put it into tick tick boom and I, I think it's one of the best songs in tick tick boom it's called come to your senses it's sort of the showstopper so um that was my main contribution i
0: think oh yeah and what was your sort of immersion like in getting into almost like his mind and what he sort of wanted there? Did you talk to people who knew him? Was there anything like that or
1: yeah, no I mean the you know the the original um project to revive it was being spearheaded very much by Victoria Laycock, who had been Jonathan's and at, at one point they'd been in a relationship but at the time of tick tick boom and rent and superbia they had they had been friends and collaborators and and Victoria had had been a kind of producer for Jonathan, so she was very intimately involved with all of his work, and she was there, and I talked a lot to her, and we're still good friends. And The prototype for the friend character, Matt, was also around and was very helpful in talking about Jonathan. Um, so yeah, I had access to people who knew him and loved him and were familiar with his whole his whole sort of, sort of career arc, also his parents. Uh, and his sister were there uh, 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 at the same time. So it was a very, it was a very moving experience getting to sort of like, you know, try to, try to resurrect something that had never been seen, but but was this key piece of, of this artist's body of work. It was, it was very, uh, it was a very rewarding
0: experience. Oh, yeah. And do you think, I'd be curious too, that there are still things that remain sort of problematic just about the concept of tick-tock boom or?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I, you know, certainly the thing that I worried the most about when we were doing it was that I really didn't want the piece to trade on our knowledge of what had happened to Jonathan Larson, you know, the tragedy of his death and the the irony of of him, you know, Lust, you know, desiring fame so much and success, and then and and then dying just before achieving it on the largest possible scale. I really didn't want this to be a play about how sad that made everybody feel. I wanted it to stand on its own terms as a piece of entertainment and as a piece of you know musical theater. So whether or not I succeeded succeeded in that, I, it's not for me to say. But that was my main concern in putting it together. And I and I remember par- trying. Hard to sort of pare back any, any tear-jerking or any overtly tear-jerking element that was that was in the material, even if it was there originally, because it would seem as though the show were trying to tug at your heartstrings in a manipulative way. I think some of that is intrinsic to it, so it couldn't be, it couldn't be removed entirely. But to the extent that we could, I, I did try.
0: Oh yeah, and uh, similar. But also very different project that also involved revising an existing work was New York idea which you did subsequently and what sort of attracted you to that play as something to bring back.
1: That was enormous fun, I mean that, but it it was brought to me by the Atlantic theater. Um, And and I had never heard of it, but you know it was, and I guess there had been actually a revival in the 70s at BAM. Um, But. You know, it was a historically an important American comedy turn of the century. I think it was 1908 um, by Langdon Mitchell, who had been a very successful American playwright. Now almost entirely forgotten the play was forgotten, but I thought that the play was delightful and funny and this wonderful time capsule. So, you know, the idea of taking it on and kind of like revamping it um, was very appealing, because, partially because you know, I, I knew we could do, we could, it was the kind of play that you don't get to do very much, like you get to do a big three act comedy with, I think we had 12 characters, a little bit smaller than the original, but still, you know, you don't get to write that kind of play anymore. Or if you write it, you're probably not going to get it produced. Um, so getting, getting to sort of educate myself about just the mechanics of how those, those plays used to work and how you get 12 characters on and off stage and how you, you know, how you do things like write minor characters and write, um, you know, write for a big cast. All that sort of stuff was really fun to do.
0: Yeah. And I know Mitchell sort of described the play as being about frivolity as an idea. And what do you think sort of the thrust of the play is or almost like the message of the play is? I thought the play was about
1: changing social and sexual sexual mores. So I thought it I thought that's what, what stood out to me uh is a kind of like a first sort of tiptoe into modernity out of the late Victorian era and a lot of these you know a lot of these sort of like slightly scandalous notions of how you conduct yourself in society concerning divorce and infidelity and women's. Rights and a number of other a number of other sort of like modern concerns were getting are getting tested out in that play in the context of this well of this of this um well-made play, drawing room comedy. so I, I that that's what seemed really fun and and
0: sort of spicy to me about it. Oh yeah. And are there other plays that you would sort of like to do the same thing with if given the opportunity,
1: I would. I mean, I. I'm doing right now. I'm. I've, I've done, and we're going to do a reading for production of a, of the of the Wild Duck.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um. But it's a pretty faithful version of the Wild Duck. It's not. It's not a revamping the way the. Um. The way the New York idea was. So, but that's also a play that I don't think gets done enough, or does not have an, and 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 does it particularly doesn't have a a really good modern version for American actors so that's what i'm trying to do with that
0: and a period of adjustment i believe was something that was a similar process with the tennessee williams
1: play. yeah period adjustment which i directed was a tennessee williams play that was done in the 50s and is one of his least or at least one of his lesser revived plays it's really interesting um and i think quite good play that was a flop on Broadway. It's it's Williams, I think, attempting to write a kind of conventional Broadway comedy and trying to sort of shoehorn all of his usual preoccupations and his iconoclasm into that form. And and the extent to which it kind of fits and doesn't fit is really interesting, but it has wonderful roles and wonderful echoes of lots of other Williams work. And uh we revived it quite successfully, I think, in the Berkshires. We um I did I didn't I did do a little bit of cutting and we did, we did move some of the act breaks around so that it became a two act play as opposed to a three act play, but it, it wasn't changed substantially. I mean, all of the, all of the stuff is still there.
0: Uh-huh. Right. And what sort of began your interest in adding directing to your role in the theater? Right.
1: Well, I i had always done it because I'd started off in these little theater groups, you know, where everyone did everything. and you know if you wrote something maybe you directed it or maybe someone maybe if you were you know if someone else wrote it they'd ask you to direct it so everyone was always switching hats and I always liked that I always I always enjoyed it and I and I thought it was sort of just of a piece with the writing it just seemed like another aspect of making theater and then as I got a little bit better established I had a playwright friends who would ask me to direct readings or productions of things. And that was something I really enjoyed as a break from my own writing and as a way to just think a little bit differently about doing theater work. And it it has gradually grown into sort of like a second component of my career. And it's one that I really treasure.
0: Oh, yeah. And what was it like specifically to work with Michael Weller on the His Play Side Effects in New York? That That was a wonderful
1: experience. I mean, I had known Michael a little bit through the dramatist skill, but I hadn't known him that well. And, you know, he's, he's someone with a deep, with deep roots in the American theater and um, lots and lots of experience and a wealth of stories. And I was, I was always, you know, happy to sort of avail myself of his, of just his wisdom and experience. It was also really exciting to work with Jolie Richardson, who's, who's an ex- astonishing actor and, you know, Getting to direct Jolie Richardson—it seems a little bit almost silly to even put it in those terms—but it was, it was, you know, exciting and challenging and stimulating and all those things.
0: Yeah, and having been on the other side of that collaboration as well with the playwright director, do you think that influences how you work with the playwright?
1: I hope so. I mean, I think. You know, I hope I hope that I'm cognizant of what the playwright's going through, <laughs> you know, and how frustrating it can be for a playwright to, even when the work is going really well, to watch the sausage being made. You know, and because I think as a playwright, what you always want is just for it to be working. You want to see it, you know. You want to see it. You want it to be. You want it to be it to be funny and moving and good and crisp and all those things. And it just can't be for the first many weeks of rehearsal, you know, and it, and it shouldn't be because that's not the way the process works. So I think, you know, every time I'm a playwright, I'm reminded of that. And every time I'm a director and you have the and you have the, you know, understandably impatient playwright coming to you, you have to sort of remember what it feels like to be on the other side. And I think the more you go back and forth, the, the better you can be at, at
0: both things. And is there a play of yours that you'd say changed the most either prior to the rehearsal process or during it? That's a really interesting question. I'm not
1: sure. I mean, I did this, I did a play called the adventures of Augie March, which of its nature was going to be something that, you know, it was a very big sprawling. The goal was to do a kind of Nicholas Nickleby style adaptation of a big, of a big novel. And we, so I did this Saul Bellow novel, it was three hours long, it wasn't as long as Nicholas Nickleby, but it was the same kind of thing where you have lots and lots of people playing lots of different parts. And the original draft was probably about four hours long. So just figuring out like, what is the right length for this thing? Like, where should it live? Because you're working with something that's on. on, on, on I was working with something that's of a different scale than anything I ever really did before. So you know, there was a it was there was a period during rehearsals and maybe a bit before rehearsals where you're sort of like, well, does this does this need to be much longer, or does it need to be much shorter, or is you know where does this thing live? And 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 that entailed a lot of a lot of cutting and rearranging and moving and experimenting. So that that was a very um, kind of uh, molten process. But we expected it to be. I mean, we we knew that it would that it would be like that.
0: And what is the difference generally between sort of the arc of a novel and the arc of a play?
1: It was particularly tricky with Augie March because the the novel really has no plot, like it's a picaresque novel with tons and tons of incident. And a character, it's a building's romance. So, you know, a character is coming of age and growing up and it covers a bunch of years and a lot happens to him but in ter- but but a play needs a plot I, you know a play needs a plot in a way that that novel you know the the novel is unified by its prose and by its exuberance and by its just verve is what pulls you through it and a play can't quite work that way it's you know it, it was pretty clear to me at least early on that like you needed you needed to be saying to the audience in some form when they got there like this is what it's about, you know. This is this is the story of this. It's not just here's a bunch of stuff that happened to this guy, <laughs> you know, because if you do that, then then the evening just has no shape. So, um, in a way, imposing a structure or implying a plot was the big challenge with that particular
0: novel. And we mentioned before you've worked on a few screenplays, and they include Georgetown and The Lake House and The Girl in the Park. And in those cases, were those ideas that were sort of pitched to you, or did they come from you? Or...
1: The Lake House was pitched to me. It was, a, it was a Korean film that the American producers wanted to adapt. And so I was working from the original film, although we ended up doing something that was quite different, but used elements from the original film. Georgetown was a true story that had been written about in there was a long New York Times magazine article about the case, this murder case. So that was based on that was sort of a true crime story. And then the girl in the park, which I wrote myself was was sort of written like a play. I mean, it was that was an original screenplay that I wrote in hopes of being able to direct it. So I, I you know I sat down to write a, you know, sort of low budget. In independent film,
0: and what was the emerging process like specifically for Georgetown with this very dark story? And
1: well, I had access to the original story and also to the author of the the journalist who wrote the article, um, and then since a lot of it was a legal case, I had all the court transcripts. So. That ended up becoming a big part of, you know, and it, I would caution anybody who orders court transcript because they, you know, if you have a if you have a big trial, they come in and they cover absolutely every inch of your office. I mean, it was piled high to the ceiling. So, but it was worth having it because, you know, you get a very clear sense of not just the events but the, the nature of the characters of the, of the people who are participating in the case, and um, that was very helpful. Right. Of course, you end up departing from strict uh fact but i think we stayed fairly close to the to, to the truth of that case in the movie
0: and what is the difference with directing film versus versus stage oh gosh i
1: mean they're so dissimilar that i'm not even they almost they almost don't deserve the same name in some ways i mean i think you know, you're still making decisions and, and, you know, making aesthetic choices and shaping performances and shaping the way a story is told. But at least the experience I've had, which was on a very, was a relatively low budget movie that had a very short schedule, you spend very little time actually, the thing I thought of as directing, which is working with the actors on their performances and Shaping the performances is, is what you spend almost none of your time doing on a, on a movie set. The re- it's mostly logistical choices. It's mostly, you know, how do we get these? What are what are the what are the four setups that we have the time to shoot today that will capture this scene and tell this story, and allow us to finish the day without running into overtime? And how can we make maximum use of the time we have? And of course those are you know those are creative decisions as well and they're aesthetic decisions as well but you know you're 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 spending most of your time doing that um uh and less time you know if you have if you have a few minutes to actually talk about performance with an actor between between setups or between takes then that's kind of a luxury
0: Hmm. and this in addition to proof this also sort of deals with themes of sort of like grief and mental health and all that sort of response and what was sort of the difference in the way those themes applied in the movie versus in proof
1: well the girl in the park i always felt you know it's about a woman who meet who she's lost her daughter at a very young age her daughter has disappeared and then years later she meets another she meets a, a young woman who is the same age that her daughter would have been and they begin a kind of relationship and i always felt that uh the the woman who's played by sigourney weaver i always felt very strongly that um in in choosing to treat this stranger like she's her daughter that the character was making a very conscious choice that she wasn't deluded she wasn't insane <laughs> she wasn't you know she there was there was no mental impairment there that she's was, she was acting in a way that makes her simply kind of like that's gratifying to her, but satisfying emotionally to her and that and the, and that's what the problem of the movie is that she's you know she's doing what she's doing. She's doing a very irrational thing, but she's doing it with both eyes open. So I think that's a big difference from proof whereas we you know in, in proof there's a real question, I hope, as to how rational or how uh, accurate Catherine's perceptions are.
0: Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. And how did the idea for The Columnist, your other Broadway play, come about?
1: I read about this character, Joseph, also. Um, I had been wanting to write something about, I I, I think I'd been wanting to write something about the Iraq War, or at least the run-up to the Iraq War and the deception of it. Um, And then it seemed a little too on the nose to go right after to go right into it so i got interested in vietnam and also was this prominent you know hawk and very influential newspaper columnist and pundit during the vietnam era who had gone from being quite a liberal new, new deal democrat to being a very hardcore conservative and proponent of the war um and even though his advocacy for the war ended up sort of destroying his career or at least making him a bit of a laughing stock. He was never able to admit, at least publicly, that that any of his enthusiasm for it had been a mistake. And that just seemed like a really interesting problem to sort of try to tackle dramatically is like, how does this happen? And how does how does someone do this to themselves? And how do they justify it? And how do they understand their own um, you know, crusade on behalf of a terrible cause kind of thing. So that turned out to be a really wonderful project. I mean, I I learned a lot about also. I got to know his family. I got to know, and it touched on lots of aspects of the political world at that time, which I found exciting to put on stage.
0: And you mentioned this actually a little with Georgetown too, but how much, if at all, did you find that it was necessary to sort of fudge the truth a little bit for dramatic purposes, or was it all exactly the truth? Well.
1: I'm not sure fudge is the right word. I mean, it is a play. You're telling a story. It, it has to be shaped for dramatic purposes. There were certainly things in terms of the strict chronology of Alsop's story that I altered in order to shape the play. And I, you know, I I made composite characters out of a group of existing characters and I, you know, and I took liberties of interpretation. But I think in terms of the big picture you know, I think you would be remiss if you went to any play and assumed that it was a documentary or assumed that it was a work of total historical accuracy. But in terms of the big picture, I wanted people to be able to walk away with an accurate sense of what went on. Um, so that was always my goal. And I, I was helped in that by, um, by also niece and stepdaughter, both of whom read the play and were very generous about it. And accepted that even though aspects of it were fictionalized, that that it was a, it was an honest portrait of the person that they knew. So that was very encouraging.
0: And there were a lot of great actors in that play too, like John Lithgow and Boy Oh God,
1: Gay. that was wonderful to to work with John.
0: Oh yeah, and I am curious too. Will you ever take a sort of suggestion from an actor about a change or
1: Oh, always. No, I mean that is one of your great resources as a playwright um the actors in the room and they're working and they're trying to figure it out and they have questions and they have um they you know they run into difficulties they have ideas they have suggestions i mean all of that goes into the filter and it's all useful um and so yes obviously I, i absolutely want to know what the actors are thinking, what, they're, what they feel that is missing, what they feel they need to or in order to, to give the performance that they want to give.
0: And the one of the plays of yours we haven't yet talked about is Lost Lake. And that was a play that sort of dealt a little bit with racism and racial relations too. And what made you decide to sort of write about that topic and what appealed to you?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I can't came th- to it through the lens of race, although that is definitely an aspect of the play. Um, I think it was. I was. I was attracted to, by the idea of writing about two people who have absolutely nothing in common and who are also uh, at odds for various reasons, becoming friends, or or real or or discovering some shared need, you know, in their life. Even if even if the extent to which they could help each other was pretty limited. So you know, I think I think it just thinking about who those characters are initially it was just like, all right, how can we make these people as diametrically opposed to one another as we can? Like one's a man, one's a woman, one's black, one's white, one's a rural sort of figure, one's not. One's you know, playing with all of those dichotomies and trying to sort of like position the characters initially as far apart from one another as you could um, was the initial impulse.
0: And how much do you pay attention to sort of reviews of your work? And
1: I pay attention. I mean, I want to know what the, I, I want to know generally what how the thing has been received. I mean, I I have curiosity about that. I don't if there's a if if the reveal if the review is a real stinker. I don't torture myself like I don't read every word. But I you know I I, I sort of want to know gener- generally how. How the press is receiving it, and I also think it takes it takes more energy to sort of ignore the reviews or to isolate <laughs> to insulate yourself from them than it would to just you know just read the first few paragraphs and see what the deal is. Um, so yeah, I pay attention to them. I read I read some of them, and uh, you know the bad ones sting a lot, and the good ones make you feel good, but not that good, and <laughs> it all sort of like you try to all put it all behind you as fast as you can and get on to the next thing.
0: Right. And what sort of draws you in about the two-person form, which is in both Lost Lake and Summer 1976? And
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not really intentional. I'm not sure that I would write another two-person play, although there I think there it doesn't there is a kind of like um discipline to it that's somewhat appealing. I mean, you you do feel like, all right, if I can if i can sustain the attention of the audience over 90 minutes or so with just two people on stage then i'm really doing something you know i'm really exercising my craft that's appealing otherwise i'm not sure that i didn't have i certainly i didn't particularly set out to do that when i started writing those plays it's just sort of how they developed
0: And have there ever been ideas for plays that you started writing and then ultimately decided wouldn't make a good play?
1: Lots of times. I mean, it's not that I decided that they wouldn't make a good play. It's that I just couldn't do it for whatever reason. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it to come together or I couldn't crack it, you know, but those are, you know, those plays still sit in your drawer and you sort of fantasize that like (laughs) one day you'll find that piece that was missing or one day you'll, have acquired, you know, the knowledge or the skill or whatever it is that you were lacking when you tried to write it five years ago. Um, so, yeah, that happens all the
0: time. And if if you're willing to share, what are some of those ideas? Or
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I spent a long time, this is quite a long time ago now, but I spent a long time trying to write a play about friendship between harry houdini and arthur conan doyle and the conflict that they had over the spiritualist movement um i was very interested in that and this question of like grief and grieving and what how some people deal with it and and also rationality um and how you know how different people approach these these questions so i wrote many hundreds of pages on it and uh, could never get it to come together in a form that I I wanted to move forward with.
0: And I would love to now go back to your directing work for a little bit to ask about you directed both Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and The Skin of Our Teeth at the Berkshires and what was it like to direct these very sort of classic American plays three acts and sort of find your own approach to them or?
1: It's very exhilarating because, you know, both with any classic, there are a whole lot of um, received notions about how the play works and what it's about and how it should be cast and those kinds of things that come along with the play because they have very long, rich histories and everybody's very familiar with, you know, at least in terms, at least with Cat on Hodge and Roof, everybody's very familiar with the movie version and with you know everyone sort of knows what who what kind of character maggie the cat is so the challenge then is to sort of try to read the play and try to approach the play as with as fresh eyes as possible so not so much that you're rejecting things that have been done before but you're trying to really think carefully about like what what do i really what am i really seeing here what is intrinsic and what is what has sort of been laid on by other productions that I may or may not find useful. So that kind of like archaeological work, I find really, really interesting. And then, you know, in the case of a play like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, there's a bunch of different versions. So, you know, even figuring out which draft or which version of Williams's play you want to do requires a lot of careful thinking and creative choices and interpretive choices. But I love tackling those plays. And I feel like I, you know, I, I find it, I find it very fascinating as a playwright to tr- to try to unpack these these great American plays and learn a little bit about how they are working or how they're functioning or how they're how they're operating and you know at least imagine that I'm getting into the heads a bit of of you know better playwrights than I am uh, and learning from them.
0: Oh yeah. And what do you like about working in the Berkshires and at that company specifically? I know you've done a lot of shows there. It's a very happy place to
1: work. I mean, I'm a I'm the associate artistic director there. It's it's a it's a it's a great theater with a long history, and they do, you know, a wide variety of challenging work. They don't shy away from tackling ambitious shows like The Skin of Our Teeth and New Plays. Um, and and the Berkshires is is a place, it's a, it's a place where artists like to come in the summertime because it's so beautiful. So, it's a wonderful kind of respite, and a, and a lovely place to work. And the audiences are great because many people choose to live there or have summer or second homes there because they are interested in the arts, and that's where Tanglewood is, and and Shakespeare and Company, and Jacob's Pillow, and lots of other. Um, arts organization, so you have a very engaged and kind of like culturally savvy audience built in.
0: Yeah, that is great. And so, to bring us up closer to the present day, too, what were you working on right before the pandemic, and what was that experience like of being locked down?
1: I had a. I was really lucky. I had a. Pro, I had a television project that I was writing in process, so I was just able to devote myself to that and. Um, It was a luxury, you know, I don't, I I work at home anyway. So the the pandemic didn't affect that. And I, my, my, my kids were home, which I really enjoyed, even though I don't think they enjoyed it as much during that whole period. So I had this very sort of cozy, once the initial, once the initial scare of, of those early weeks in New York was passed a bit, and that was a scary time. I really had a very privileged pandemic um, and got a lot of work done.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, so I was lucky. And what has it been like to balance being a parent with being a playwright and director and all sort of career in the theater?
1: Oh, I think it's just all of a piece, really. I mean, I haven't thought that much in terms of balance. I mean, there have been a few times of being a... Doing a project has required being away. But uh, you know, mostly I think it just uh, I, you know, I find being a parent extremely engaging and enjoyable. So to the extent that it keeps makes me a happy, happier person, <laughs> I'm a I'm a better and happier theater artist. Uh and it's been fun taking kids to show, taking the kids to shows and involving them. Uh, in my work to the extent that they've wanted to be, although neither of them has gone into into, into the theater um, as a direction for themselves, which is fine. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's all
0: it's all been good. Right. And did the commission from Manhattan Theatre Club come after the pandemic or before? Or? It it must have
1: come before. Yeah, it definitely came before because I, I had started working a bit on the play before the
0: pandemic. Wow. And do you find that anything sort of about what you want to write or the way you write has changed because of the pandemic? Or
1: I want to keep writing. I mean, you know, the experience of getting back in a room with lots and lots of creative people is so exhilarating and so fun. It's such a central part of why you work in the theater at all. And it was it was a deprivation not to have it for those two years so you know writing things i guess writing big things appeals to me more than more than it did before perhaps like let's 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 take on let's 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 do big stuff let's get lots and lots of actors on the stage if we can and let's exploit all of the all of the avenues that that the theater gives us let's you know while let's party while we can kind of kind of thing i think is my attitude coming out of it
0: Right. And then the final question I'd love to ask is with such a great career, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out?
1: Um, I mean, there there are a bunch of things I would say to people. One I think the biggest thing and the thing that made the biggest difference for me starting out was finding some kind of community of like-minded people who also wanted to do theater and getting together with them and just doing it. Just find just producing yourself, finding some finding a community of people who wanted to put on shows. Um, I know it sounds sort of Andy Hardy-ish, but I think that, you know, that really is where most careers come from. They come out of small collectives of people who get together and do work and teach themselves and amuse themselves and gradually build an audience and an aesthetic and an approach to to the art that they wanna make. And many more theater careers come out of Uh, Ventures like that then come out of, you know, sending a play to a theater where you don't know anybody or, you know, working in isolation. I think isolation is the real killer. So yeah, producing yourself at whatever level you can, I think is the real key. And then the other thing I would just, I always do try to say to people is that, you know, if you're experiencing doubt or you're experiencing insecurity or uncertainty or even kind of like terror that that's totally normal that everyone experiences that everyone at every level of the profession experiences that i don't think anyone is immune so take some comfort in the thought that you know no matter how worried you might feel everybody feels that way and and you can you can still do this work
0: yeah That is great advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to meet you. Thanks, Charles. That was really fun. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in And remember to come back next week When I return to my focus on Broadway's Golden Age By presenting an exclusive career interview With dancer Leland Palmer Who now goes by Linda Posner After making her Broadway debut in Hello Dolly Leland went on to perform in Bajor, A Joyful Noise Where she assisted Michael Bennett Applause and finally Pippin Where she starred as festrada She also toured with Applause, Pleasures and Palaces and Little Me, starting Your Own Thing off-Broadway and in London, and appeared regionally in Sugar, Philemon, and Dames at Sea. And on top of all this, she starred on screen in Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. You won't want to miss this conversation, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.